You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sharon Delgado is an ordained United Methodist minister and is founder and executive director of Earth Justice Ministries. Her new book is Shaking the Gates of Hell, Faith-Led Resistance to Corporate Globalization. Thank you for joining me, Sharon. Thank you. Sharon, I think you do a great job of setting the scene in this book, so I'd like you to tell us about the moments when you first started writing this book. I first started writing this book uh, after the events that took place in late 1999 in Seattle. Uh, In fact, the book starts with a scene where I'm in jail in Seattle after um, participating in nonviolent civil disobedience and uh, shutting down the first day's meetings of the World Trade Organization. And I had, up until that time, been involved in peace and justice and environmental issues, but I had been looking more closely at the economic underpinnings of all of these issues and what links them together. And I began to see that this current form of economic globalization that people call corporate globalization because it's dominated by corporations has a lot to do with all of the problems that we're facing as a species with the environmental problems, social problems, um, violence, terror, war, and so on. So that's when I started writing the book, Soon After Seattle. What happened in Seattle was described as riots, and that's not how you describe it. Could you tell us a little bit about the scene, uh, how what you did to block the stop the first day of the tra- talks? Well, first of all, there were a lot of churches involved. Um, the First United Methodist Church there was uh, they had a big sign up that said NGO Central for non-governmental organizations. We started marches from there. We had teach-ins there. Uh, The churches were quite active in Seattle. Uh, We had a big uh, candlelight vigil around the, uh, the, the area where the delegates were meeting the first night. Um, for Jubilee 2000 to call for a cancellation of the debt of the world's poorest nations. In the daytimes, there were were marches with um, labor unionists and people dressed as endangered sea turtles marching together. The theme was Teamsters and Turtles Together at Last. And there was a party atmosphere with um, people marching bands and the cheerleaders and all kinds of costumes and giant puppets and people on stilts. It was quite festive. Um, there, later on, the uh, police did uh, a- attack us with uh, tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and concussion grenades as I sat in an intersection with about 50 other people to try and block the meetings that first day. Um, I expected it to be a purely symbolic protest, that that's how I understood civil disobedience, but um, to have that effect that actually the meetings couldn't take place was an, an, was an amazing experience for me. There were about 50 people in our intersection with several hundred people dancing around and bringing us food and water and so on, um, and in all the intersections around the uh, convention center. This book has a, a structure that really 
um, speaks to what the subject is. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. There are three parts of the book that, the way I see it, say what's happening now, why it's happening, mm-hmm. and what to do about it. Right. And you call what's happening now the, the gates of hell undoing creation. Mm-hmm. Not a good sign. Right. Uh, you call what's, why it's happening the powers of this world and globalization as a beast. Mm-hmm. Again, not mm-hmm. a good sign. <laughs> it's a biblical term. <laughs> and what to do about mm-hmm. it is to fight the powers. Mm-hmm. Each part of the book also begins with the theological underpinnings That's right. of why these things matter. Yes. So I, I'd like to talk a little bit. Let's talk first about the gates of hell undoing creation as to what's happening because you you have an interesting perception of the earth itself as a revelation of God. I do. Uh, First of all, I want to say I appreciate you asking for some of the more in-depth issues, because that's one of the things that was lacking in the coverage from Seattle and is often lacking when there are any kind of demonstrations. So I appreciate that. Uh, The first part, um, the gates of hell undoing creation, is uh, the idea is that the crisis facing humanity right now is multifaceted. We have global climate change. We have the globalization of toxic pollution, um, uh, biodiversity loss and ecosystems being lost, uh, water scarcity. People talk about peak oil, growing inequity, food insecurity, violence, terror war, all of these things. Uh, And what I'm saying is that if we don't turn things around, we are facing a living hell on earth. That's how I'm using the term hell here. Um, Talking about at at the very beginning of each of the three parts that you described, I have a chapter that is theological, spiritual. And the first chapter in this part, part one, is um, the earth as primary revelation. And that is a term from Father Thomas Berry. He says that the earth is the primary revelation, and if we diminish the beauty and awesomeness of this earth that we've been given, our spirituality is also diminished. Our ability to experience God through the creation is diminished as well. And so what's at stake is our context, our home, uh, all of what makes us human, children of God and also children of the earth— um, that's what's at stake with these environmental um, with these environmental problems. Now, how does this message sell in the more mainstream churches that we see on television? Um, it depends on what church you're talking about, because I uh, there a lot. The churches are part of the problem. Uh, the churches that support empire have been around ever since um, Constantine who uh, converted his whole, the Roman Empire, to Christianity. Before that, Christianity was an an outcast religion. Uh, They wouldn't serve in the Roman army. And when uh, Constantine Christianized the uh, Roman Empire, you had to be a Christian to serve in the army. So everything shifted at that point, and we still have in this country and in different countries uh, forms of civil religion, uh, religion and Christianity uh, for sure, that supports the status quo, supports the powers that be, uh, and doesn't question. You know, we wave the flag and we 
uh, worship God in the same breath. And that, to me, that's counter to what, what Jesus was all about because Jesus was put to death by empire because he was a subversive, because he was a resistor. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi both point to Jesus as their model, as their inspiration for nonviolent resistance. So, um, so oh, but sometimes, but there are many people who uh, are very happy to hear this message and agree. There's an evangelical environmental network, the Catholic Church, the mainline Protestant churches all have uh, uh, have statements about social justice, the National Council of Churches, World Council of Churches, uh, justice and peace and healing of creation. You talk about some of what's happening. We've got deforestation and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. What do we know about deforestation and the loss of biodiversity? And, and for from for example, mm-hmm. my one of the things you do I think quite well mm-hmm. is to bring things into a personal context. Yes, I do. Because we all have these kind of experiences. For me, the the loss mm-hmm. of biodiversity is there used to be a big vacant lot near where I lived. They <clears throat> they. Uh, built a ha- and that's where when I drive to work at five in the morning, that's where I'd see the foxes run. Yes. Um, once they paved over that vacant lot and put up a huge housing development with some pretty ritzy houses, mm-hmm. I haven't seen a fox since. That's right. That's right. And uh, the tragedy of that is it is happening all over the world. Uh, the way that I, I do talk about uh, it from a personal perspective, I try and start every chapter with a story, a personal story about me, about my grandchildren. Uh, and so I tell the story of when my grandson and I went looking for frogs in Carbonero Creek near here, near Santa Cruz. Um, I talk about uh, spiritual experience I had in the woods in my around my home in Nevada City. And so I do talk about that. But then that's just the precursor to bring the reader into the um, the facts, the the story about how many of our species are endangered and how many species are in danger of extinction, uh, the way that ecosystems are being destroyed at an accelerating rate. because And a lot of it has to do with the economic system that uh, we have that originated in the United States and Britain and is being exported to the rest of the world in this global economic system, which is what part two is about, which... Uh, one thing that, that we have seen, and you talk about global climate change, mm-hmm. and global chi- climate change has been in the news a lot. It's being yes. accepted into mainstream, and I, I yes. think this is a way that you're going to be able to bring in people because they this is hard to ignore, isn't it? Yes, people are really uh, becoming aroused now, and that's what it's going to take to uh, to turn this ship around. When And we also have... Even though, since when I was a kid back in the 70s, I, I remember, you know, the scares about pollution, Rachel Carson, Silent Springs, mm-hmm. paperback on the shelves. And since then, we've had a pretty good awareness of, of what pollutants can do. And, you know, we took DDT out, mm-hmm. of, the, out of the chain for the most part. Yes. Um, but we still have a pretty bad toxic future. Yes, we do. And uh, in, in the book, I do point out that there's, uh, there's something called the circle of poison, so that, yes, we have eliminated DDT here, but as we're uh, exporting different toxic products, including pesticides, the 
the designer poisons to other countries and then importing the foods from those countries that we have less and less control over what we're eating and uh, pollution, as I point out in the chapter about pollution, is spreading around the world. And we really need to start cleaning up our act. We need to go with the precautionary principle, which means uh, we don't just release toxic chemicals indiscriminately. Um, you know, do, do they have the right? Uh, do they have the right to be innocent until proven guilty, even if it takes some of us to sicken and die for that to, to be the case? No, I don't think so, except that corporations have been given more rights than human beings have under the current system. Could you explain exactly what the precautionary principle is? The precautionary principle means that um, it is the uh, we take precaution on before we release something into the environment uh, if there is a risk of grave harm, that we use precaution, even if you can't prove it to be harmful. If, there's, uh, if, if there is the danger and the risk uh, of extreme harm, then, and especially if it's irreversible harm, then there needs to be precaution. The corporation that produces it needs to prove that it's safe rather than we need to prove that it's dangerous, harmful. Then uh, you talk about something that, and now I, I take issue with some of what you mm -hmm. talk about in technological problems. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of a techno geek. Yeah. And so um, I, you do point out, and this is certainly true, that the risks and the benefits of our highest technology mm -hmm. are very unevenly distributed. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, but then we talk about. I, I do believe that some of the uh, some of the higher technologies that you talk about the risks of of the post-human. Mm -hmm. humans. And, and this mm -hmm. is something I, I've just attended a couple conferences, mm -hmm. the Singularity Summit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, do you know what the Singularity You know more than I do, oh, but okay. yes, <laughs> I do. I've read about the Singularity, the concept, yes. So do you think that some of these technologies that, that are extremely transformative mm -hmm. might have the potential to uh, take us, uh, to help turn that ship around? In what way? You mean uh, by being able to clean up the environment and feed more people through genetic engineering of food and that kind of thing? Nanotechnology? Sure. sure. Well, I, um, I, I do think that, that uh, genetic engineering does hold some mm -hmm. promise, although mm -hmm. it has to be very carefully weighed and used. Mm -hmm. And one of the, mm -hmm. I think, the problems that you point out is that these technologies are market-driven and not human-driven. Could you explain that kind of distinction? Well, they, supposedly they're market-driven, but as everyone knows, the market is distorted. We put, uh, as a society, we put huge subsidies towards different uh, technologies and different products, uh, including genetically modified, um, uh, genetic modification and uh, the human genome project, for instance. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing that, mapping the human genome, but um, it isn't just market-driven. Uh, people claim that it's market-driven, uh, it's actually profit-driven. It's profit-driven uh, by corporations. And what I'm saying is there needs to be a wider debate. There needs to be uh, human beings need to be involved. The general public needs to be involved in making some of these decisions because the general public is going to be affected if genetically modified trees, for instance, uh, spread out and take over forests, or if genetically modified corn continues to harm um, monarch butterfly larva, and uh, what did I recently hear? Caddisfly larva. 
there are some environmental risks, some major environmental risks of, of letting these technologies go without, without testing them. You talk about something I think really that's really is interesting. Could you explain the technozoic versus the ecozoic age? Mm, that's another Thomas Berry term. He's saying that um, the Cenozoic age, the age of flowering plants, where there is so much abundance and uh, diversity and the, the flourishing of such diversity of life right now that brought us to, to where we are now is over. Because from now on, nothing that are, are the whole evolutionary process is going to be affected by human decision. So he's putting the question before us, is this going to be a technozoic age that we enter into? Are we going to be genetically modifying human beings? Are we going to uh, have artificial intelligence that can further modify human beings uh, and other species? Or is it going to be an ecozoic age where we uh, truly uh, make the, the transition, as Joanna Macy says, to the great turning, the great turning into a future of um, that's peaceful, just, and sustainable, and watched over, as Richard Brodigan said, by machines of loving grace. By machines of loving grace. Now that sounds more like a technozoic age to me. Well, it's a combination of the two. That the, the two need not be uh, alternatives. The thing is, is that are we, as a species now, at the level of uh, maturity to be able to design and engineer the future of all life and future generations on Earth? I think not. I think we've shown the opposite. Well, we might be able to design something that could design the future of all Earth. But how would we know what that would look like? And that's why I think it's important to link these conversations with spirituality, because we really have to look at who we are as, um, in, in Judeo-Christian terms, created from the dust of the earth, but even in uh, modern scientific terms, terms, we're created out of the same stuff as, as the earth, as the stars. Uh, we, we are hu human, we're humble, we're humus, you know, uh, and yet we have spirit. And so it's that spirit that we need to look to to help guide our steps, not, uh, not technology. That's an idol. That's a false god. It's, it's a good servant. It's not a good master. It's a good tool. and It could be a good tool. As with any tool, it could be used with for precaution. good. With precaution, absolutely. And there are good uses for um, uh, genetic engineering, for um, the, the, the kinds of treatments that are for individuals. But to genetically modify humans in the way that it's going to affect future generations, now that's a different step. Most certainly, and one that unfortunately at this point is governed by what you call, and David Serrata calls, mm -hmm. uh, the race to the bottom. Hmm. Could you explain what the race to the bottom is? Because this is really, yes. I think, the governing principle why we're, why this ship, as you put it, is headed in, yes, in the direction yes. it is. The race to the bottom is a term that is used when talking about uh, the current form of globalization because... Um, with the trade agreements that we have, the World Trade Organization, that institution, and then NAFTA and other tr free trade agreements, they have a ceiling. They have 
uh, people can't have, for instance, labels that says that their foods are genetically modified. They can't uh, discriminate against products based on how they're uh, acquired or produced. There are all these limitations that we can't go higher than the ceiling, but there's no floor. There's no floor in these free trade agreements. There are no labor standards. There are no consumer safety standards. It's all low. It's, it's you know, everyone's trying to compete by going lower and lower. So uh, corporations are now able, having uh, promoted and gotten into place these institutions, these bureaucracies, uh, corporations are able to roam the world seeking the cheapest uh, wages, the most lax environmental standards, and the most uh, uh, oppressive human rights regimes, really, in order to um, ha have their costs down and their uh, profits up and their stock prices up. And so it drives down wages around the world, and it drives down environmental standards, human rights standards, consumer safety standards, and we're sure feeling it here, for instance, in all the products that are coming that are filled with lead and, and that kind of thing. The, the parties responsible for this, you take a biblical term, I, I believe, mm -hmm. the powers and principalities. Mm -hmm. Explain mm -hmm. who that is. And, mm. and could you talk, uh, take us from the theological mm -hmm. perspective to the corporation is a psychopath. Oh. Um, the powers and principalities, that idea is a biblical term, and many people, including William Stringfellow and Walter Wink and others, have talked about the powers. Uh, in, in, in the Bible, they talk about the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the principalities, but they're the dominant institutions of our age. Uh, Walter Wink calls it the domination system, the interlocking network of uh, social, political, economic, military institutions that dominate the world at any particular time. Another word for it is empire. Another word for it is corporate rule in this day. Um, so, uh, so that's uh, the idea of the principalities and powers. One of the main ideas is that it is uh, their tendency is to dehumanize people, that, that we give our loyalty over to these institutions in which we live, and by doing so, we become cogs in the institutional machine. And so we're dehumanized in the process, and we forget that we, each one of us, has power as, as a human being to say yes or no, to, to take stands, to, um, to make a difference in the world. Um, now, the, the corporation, the problem with the corporation, oh, first of all, this can happen in any institution, even in the church, because we can start serving the church instead of, uh, you know, serving the people that the church is established to serve. But it's even worse in a corporation because there is no, the only purpose for which it's created is for profit and for rising stock values. Uh, the only, by law, the corporation uh, needs to be accountable primarily to its stockholders. Its fiduciary responsibility is to the stockholders, and that goes beyond any responsibility to the community, to its workers, to the consumer of its products, and so on. So that's the foundation of why the corporation's psychopathic, because we've allowed it to be so. We've defined it 
as so. You talk, use an interesting metaphor for globalization as the beast, and oh. that is the Borg. <laughs> That's a fun chapter. Yeah. Why? Tell us why the Borg are a good metaphor, and tell us then why resistance is not futile. <laughs> um, well, the, for people who, uh, well, my generation, I guess, and, and then my kids' generation, uh, watch Star Trek. And I don't have a TV, but I somehow managed to see a lot of the, the, the Star Trek shows. And uh, Voyager, the Voyager series, has this, the, the most evil threat to the starship Voyager is the Borg. And it's a, 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 a collective that's made up of species from all over the universe, but they've been turned into drones that have no div- individuality. They just, uh, they speak with billions of voices speaking as one. And when they go in to conquer a planet, these kind of robot-like, well, they're technologically enhanced, like some of these uh, visions that we have of a technological future. Sure, sure. Yeah. So they go in, and they when they're approaching their intended victims, they say, um, you must comply, resistance is futile. And they say that over and over to intimidate people into not... Um, not resisting. And and right now, globally, we have a system that that is based on an ideology that, that I call and others have called market fundamentalism. I like that. I, that, I like that yeah. concept. Could you explain yeah. what's market fundamentalism? Market fundamentalism is, some people have said it's the dominant religion of our age. It's a secular religion that we believe that, you know, the market is, is basically God. Uh, is divine. Uh, the invisible hand of the market will take care of everything. Um, profit is uh, the goal. Uh, the vision is um, unlimited growth. And you know, I, I also I point out in the book that you know you can't have unlimited growth. And that by that three percent growth a year that we always hear, oh, that's so good. We're still doing well. We're still growing. You know, if you know about compound interest, you know that that's not just a little 3%. That's compounded. That's like exponential growth, economic growth. And we have a finite planet. We can't just continue to grow, 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 and use more and more resources indefinitely. We're coming up against the limits of the planet. But still, we have this ideology that, that says that uh, the market's going to take care of everything. Let's privatize. Let's... Uh, let the market give it a free reign, you know, get government off the backs of the corporations and let the market rule and all will be well. So that's market fundamentalism. I'd like you to talk about the specific role of some of the most, I believe, what you perceive to be some of the most evil powers at work, which would be the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank. Mm -hmm. I want to make clear that I'm not saying that the people in these institutions are bad. Um, I know it serves a purpose sometimes to point out a particular CEO or a particular president and just really, you know, it might focus energy. But really, for someone to rise to power in such a system, it's the system that's at fault. And we're all responsible for the system that we have. Uh, to the degree that we participate, consent, and so on. Uh, nevertheless, there are some institutions that I do think need to be uh, uh, s- taken apart, uh, uh, decommissioned, and start from scratch. I think the World Trade Organization is one of them. We need a, we need a new uh, trade institution, perhaps uh, under the 
auspices of a reformed United Nations that has uh, civil society involvement, not just bureaucrats and tr so-called uh, trade representatives who have a vested interest in the whole corporate mindset. Um, so that's one. Um, I talk about uh, the, the prison industrial complex uh, in the United States as a domestic enforcement mechanism of this global, inst uh, this global economy. The, the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Explain what you mean. Well, by that. the prison industrial complex. Uh, you know, there's there are other things driving this huge uh, and growing lockup of of people in the United States, other than just uh, people are committing crimes. Uh, there are economic reasons. Um, you know, there's been a lot of privatization of prisons. In, I think, 1975, there were no private prisons in the United States. Today, there are over 120,000 private prisons that talk about uh, not having prison cells but prison beds. It's like a hotel. It's like an industry that you want to fill it up. And so the private prisons have been uh, lobbying for really tough-on-crime legislation like three-strikes three laws and all mandatory minimums and all of that. There's a huge amount of money that's going into these kinds of laws, and some of them, some of the uh, private prisons like Wackenhut and GEO uh, actually write legislation and promote it to our lawmakers themselves. So, um, and, and a lot of the functions of the prisons, even the public prisons, have been privatized. So if there are 2 million people in prisons, that's 6 million meals a day that need to be, you know, sold. And you know, so there's a profit motive. Okay. Well, it's clear we're well on our way to hell. In the handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> Some <coughs> we're, people we're, are already experiencing it, yes. yes. And the military-industrial complex is another chapter. And I talk about Iraq and, and some of what had led up to Iraq, how our decisions are made. There's a huge amount of corporate involvement, not just in what weapons we develop, but in um, what, uh, what our foreign policy is. So, yes, if we don't turn things around, we are, um, we are in pretty bad shape. Okay. Now, what can somebody who's an individual, a spiritual individual, mm -hmm. do about it? And, and how can we join with this kind of faith-led resistance without, uh, for, my, for me mm -hmm. at least, um, I don't want to advance some of the social policies that, that are, you know, associated with the, some of the bigger faiths. I, I'm, that's something right. I'm, I'm morally right. opposed to some of those yes. policies. And, and so how do we yes. get advance one without dragging the other behind us. Yes. Oh, that's so important because, you know, I have people who are close to me who don't even want to call who don't even want to call themselves Christian because they don't want to associate themselves with certain social policies even though they believe in God and they they uh, experience themselves as followers of of Jesus Christ. Um, and um, I know it's not just the Christian faith. That's my context and I'm not uh, I have a progressive Christian perspective, mm -hmm. and um, so I I uh, I don't agree with a lot of those policies. But um, I think individuals really do need to not just follow any particular either pastor or church teaching. I think we really do need to reclaim our humanity in the sense of of being discerning, in the sense of. Um, 
really uh, getting good information, not just from the mainline media, uh, prayer, um, and uh, so first of all, finding out, uh, opening ourselves up to the earth, to uh, the creator uh, speaking to us through the earth and through, through the natural world, and also looking deep within our own tr- faith traditions, whatever they are, to find what is real and true and lasting. Uh, at the same time, learning about these issues that are, that are threatening us. I think it's going to take uh, going deep within, uh, going um, back to really basics spiritually in order to have the strength and the stamina to face what's going on uh, because it's fearful. And a lot of people don't want to look at it. You just might as well not look at it because there's nothing we can do. And I think that's the soul sickness of our, of our society, contemporary society. So we need to find the strength to be willing to join together with others to take action. One of the many conceits, it, what you said just struck me, one of the many mm. conceits of uh, vampire novels and monster mm. novels mm. is that they have succeeded by m- making us not believe in them, that, that, that that's how they continue to exist. And I think that mm-hmm. this is something you, you allude to here, that we really need to, as you say, we need to name and unmask the powers. I ne- we need to name and unmask the powers. That's right. They need to be named. It's like the, with the emperor, uh, the emperor that had no clothes. We need to, uh, and, and actually the churches are in a great place to do this. And uh, other faith traditions, Judaism, um, Rabbi Michael Lerner is doing this. We need to be able to say, um, this is what's going on. And that takes away the power because they, um, because people can then see things in a new way. That's actually the power of, of, uh, of preaching, of storytelling, of the, the traditions of of faith communities. So there are a variety of things. The last chapter of my book talks about things that people can do on a personal level, on a spiritual level, coming together in community within their faith community and within the the local, the locale, the region, their region, and creating strong, uh, sustainable, uh, cooperative uh, local communities and local economies then joining together to create a mass movement, including a, a political movement, changing the wind uh, so that the politicians will have to listen, and also nonviolent civil disobedience, willingness to engage in nonviolent direct action in ways that can uh, let those who are in power, but also the rest of us know that there are people who are willing to take a stand and willing to um, take action to turn things around. We've been speaking with Sharon Delgado. Her new book is Shaking the Gates of Hell, Faith-Led Resistance to Corporate Globalization. Thank you for joining me, Sharon. Thank you. And they can find uh, more about my book at www.shakingthegatesofhell.com. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.